If you have your Bible this morning, turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to do a brief overview of Genesis to Revelation today. I didn't get to preach last week, what can I say? No, we're, uh, over the next 12 weeks I want to look at grace, the grace story. What is grace? We talk about it all the time, we were just saying about it all morning, what is grace? It's, it's unearned favor. It's not something you can do that you deserve, it's not something that you earned, it's not something that, that somebody owes you, it's something that's given to you, it's, it's, it's a gift. And today we're looking at, starting at the very beginning of the Bible, and we're going to look all the way through the Bible at the grace story that's, that's woven, that's, that's interwoven into this, into the fabric of, of God's story to us. It's the grace story. And we're going to start out with the concept that, that God's grace is more than enough. Anytime I think of more than enough, because food is a passion of mine, I think of the claim jumper. Anybody here ever eat at the claim jumper restaurant? Have you ever been there? Have you ever seen the motherload cake? It looks like this. It's seven layers with a chocolate fudge icing with walnuts in it. The Food Network said that it was one of the top five most decadent desserts. Now get this, just one slice, the typical slice, has 2,760 calories, 55 grams of fat, 350 carbs, One slice, not the whole cake, 350 carbs, but it is healthy because it has 14 grams of fiber. (laughs) It's more than enough. I I was a a young pastor. I'd come to California the first time, first time ever go to Claim Jumper, and the pastor who was treating me that day said they have a little dessert called the Motherload chocolate cake. You just order the chocolate cake. You didn't have, I just had a piece of chicken. I had a very small meal comparison. And he said, you had a, such a small meal. Why don't you have the chocolate cake as a dessert? And they all ordered desserts. And I had ordered the mother load. My goodness. There are eight of us there that day. And we, the eight of us couldn't finish it. More than enough. Grace is God's mother load to us. It is more than enough. It's lavished on us. Ephesians 1.8 says God's grace has been lavished on us. And we struggle with the whole concept of grace because in our life we're taught there is no free lunch. There is a free lunch. It's called grace. And in our life we struggle with grace because receiving grace is refreshing. But when we're asked to extend grace, when someone has done something wrong especially, it's difficult. Andy Stanley in a book called The Grace of God says it this way, Grace is what I crave most when my guilt is exposed. And that very grace is the very thing I'm hesitant to extend when I'm confronted with the guilt of others. Especially when their guilt has robbed me of something I consider valuable. We struggle with grace. We struggle with it because you can't deserve it. You can ask for grace. You can plead for grace. You can want it. You can need it. But the minute you begin to think that you deserve grace, it's no longer grace. If you deserve it, it's not grace. I mean, saying that I deserved grace is kind of like saying I planned my own surprise birthday party. You can't do it. You can't surprise yourself. Well, Maybe for some, we won't, we won't go on the dementia thing. But usually you can't, you can't plan your own surprise birthday party. The Old Testament 
we struggle with this because the Old Testament's not about grace, it's about law. We struggle with grace because the Old Testament is all about if you, if you obey the law, then you're saved. You, you come into a relationship with God, and in the New Testament, it's about grace. I'm here to tell you that's not true. In fact, we're going to see that the Mosaic law was the extension of God's grace to us. We struggle with it because we see in the Old Testament, we see a picture of God sometimes that we don't like. We see whole nations that, that Israel's told to wipe out nations, and, and we see this God that we don't like. Dr. Richard Daw- uh, Dawkins wrote a book called The God Delusion, and this is the way he describes the God of the Old Testament. The, God, the, godless, the graceless God is what he calls him in this particular paragraph. The graceless God. The graceless God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Excuse me, it's not fiction. But that's what he says, the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. God is jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. God, this graceless God, is a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, boy, I knew I was going to do that, and I practiced these too, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully is this God. Is that the way you think of God sometimes? If you read the Old Testament, do you get to the point where you say, where's the grace? Where's the grace? And we struggle with it because of that. I'm here to tell you, and what I'm going to show you over the next 12 weeks, by the grace of God, is that we're going to see God's grace woven in every chapter, in every story, in everything we find in the Old Testament as well as the New. The Bible is one long grace story which God gives us, and in which God gives us more than enough no matter what. And we're going to start with Genesis. Genesis is a story of creation, you know that. In Genesis 2, there's an interesting part, because in Genesis 2, and even though we're not going to read it today, there's a part where Adam is told, or is looked at by God, and, and this is what it says in Genesis 2.18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. How will he ever find the right directions? It's not there, but that's, that's implied, okay? It's not good for man to be alone. Who's going to pick up his socks? I will make a helper suitable for him. Okay, that's the George Knight extra version is what I threw in there. It's not good for man to be alone. God saw man, and he showed grace. If you have your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And, and I've said Genesis 1 uh, through 1, 1 through 25, but we're just going to read uh, the first five verses, and then we're going to skip to the last. I don't want to go over the whole creation account. I just want to make the point of the grace that we see. In Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God. Don't jump over that. God was already there. In the beginning, when time began, God already was. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the face of the, of the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. We've read that before, right? We've jumped right over that before. I want you to think about that. Go back to verse 3. And God said, let there be light. Why? Why? And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Different spelling for my last name. 
And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Look at verse 24. Sixth day. This was the first day. Sixth day. Look at what it says. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its own kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. God introduced grace through creation. God introduced grace. The very beginning that we see grace begins the very moment that God even pondered this thought of creation. Creation, number one, is the result of grace. I I, I want you to think about this for a minute. Who, Who penned the book of Genesis? Who wrote it down? Anyone know? Who? Moses. Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Why would Moses do that? Was Moses around at the time that Adam and Eve were created? Well, no, if Moses was around, then there wouldn't have been a need for Adam and Eve to be created. When did Moses hear the story? Well, there's, there's a couple of different ways it could have happened. It could have been an oral tradition that from Adam on, each one told their son, their daughter, their family, and they passed it on one generation to another. And that's very possible because much of history was handed on that way before they wrote it down. They would pass it on and they would make the children repeat it over and over until they made sure that they, would, they were able to repeat it to their children. It's very possible. But Moses did have a little interview with God. Do you remember that? They came out of the area called Egypt, and they went across the Red Sea, and Moses said, you guys stay here. Uh, The the Lord wants me to go to the top of this mountain. And for 30 days, 40 days, Moses is there. And the people got to the point they thought Moses isn't coming back, and they formed this whole false god. And Moses comes down, and he has the law. But we don't know what else God might have told him in that time. I tend to think that God may have said, what have you heard about the oral tradition? Let me tweak that a little bit. Let me, let me make sure that you have all the details right. But however it is, Moses penned the book of Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Why? Why would it be necessary to do it at this point? Because Israel has been in Egypt for over 400 years. And in Egypt for 400 years, what, what had they been looking at? They'd been looking at the Egyptian mythology. They'd been looking at the, the polytheistic uh, versions of gods. All of these different gods. They had Ra. They had the sun god. They had the, they had the fertility gods. They had the, the gods that would cause the crops to come. They had the god of water. They had all of these different gods. In fact, there are many scholars that believe the ten plagues, each of them was dealing with one of the gods, including the fact that the Pharaoh's son, that the Pharaoh's son was supposed to be God. So if number one, creation is the result of grace, here it is right here, there we go, if creation is the result of grace, then what Moses is trying to do is trying to help them remember who God is. They had a distorted view of God. Most religions have their gods take up residency, especially the Egyptian gods. They took up residency. They took up this residency when the the universe was already created. They just kind of came on the scene, and then the god worked from there. And Moses says, no, the Hebrew god existed before anything. And what Moses says here is that God created everything, all of matter and time and space, from what? From nothing. Literally, the Hebrew says, out of nothing, everything was created. And God, there was no universe, and God created the universe, and he created time and space and matter. You ever thought of why? 
Why did God create the universe? Was God lacking something? Was there something that God was missing? Did he think, you know, I'm, I'm so perfect, but if I just had people, is that what God needed? No. God was perfect in and of himself. He was in perfect relationship with the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He already had a community, and the community was perfect with no sin. Why did God create the universe? Because he had to, because he needed to, because he could? I believe God created the universe because of grace. Because he wanted to do something. And it, and it goes even further. If you are God who knows all things, and if you are God who has all power, and you create this universe in which the people that you create are going to cause death and destruction and decay to come in and all the diseases, would you go ahead and create the universe? God did. What does it mean? Time after time, day after day, it says that he created the light and he saw that it was, what was the word? Good. Good for who? Did God need the light? Did God need the light to be able to see? Who was the light good for? I mean, did he create the light and, and then, you know, the Holy Spirit came to him and said, good job, God. That light, that's a, that's a really neat thing. You know, pat him on the back, like you've painted a room, you've painted a house, and somebody comes by and says, wow, that really looks good. Do you think that's what it was good? No. Was, who was it good for? Who was light good for? Do you need light? How often do we think of how much grace is involved in light? How many times do you wake up in the morning and say, man, I'm so glad that light is here? Only the mornings when your power doesn't work. Or the mornings when you wake up and all of a sudden you have this degeneration of, of maybe your eyes and you can't see. You ever wake up and you have your eyes matted closed because you've had some kind of, I, I remember one time when I was a kid, I had, I had something come up and I got an infection in my eyes and I woke up in the morning and my eyelids were sealed shut because of all the junk in my eyes. That's kind of a weird feeling, by the way. And you know, I was a teenager and I was going around the house trying to find my way. I was really glad when my mom said, here, let me put some warm water on it and get you fixed up and went to the doctor and immediately it was taken care of. Turned out that I'd gotten a piece of steel in my eye when I was working at Kenworth and I got a piece of steel in there that I didn't realize and it had caused this infection that had spread to both eyes. A little, anoint, a little ointment, a little antibiotic and I was ready to go. But if you've ever lost your sight for even a moment... Are you glad to have it back? The Lord said, it was good. In John 9, the blind man is restored and he has a sight. And all the way through the Bible, it keeps saying verses like uh, Psalm 19.1. Look at what it says, Psalm 19.1. It says, the heavens, it's right there, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hand. What's the work of his hands? Well, the, the grace work, the, 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 the fact that God gave us not only light, if you went through the days, he gave us land, and he gave us trees, and he gave us animals, and he gave us water, and he gave us all of the things. He set up the whole ecosystem that you have these people in California that are so worried that, that it's going to be disrupted. He is the one who put it in, into play. He is the one who created it. What did Adam and Eve do to deserve light? or land, or trees. Nothing. What did you deserve? What did you do to deserve creation? What did you do? Was there something that you did that, 
that you deserved all of the things that God has given you, the air that you breathe, the life that we experience, it's called grace. Number two, creation is rich with grace. You see, grace is never just enough. Grace is never just about, well, here's enough for you to get by. Grace is always, I'm going to heap it on, and, and it's going to be this lavished on you. It's more than enough. It's always more. If it was just light and land, it would be one thing, but grace goes further. Grace created the, the majestic sunsets, the flowers, the fruit, the veggies. We just came back. We spent a week in Florida with, uh, visiting Chris and, and uh, Sherry and you know, just in case you want to know, I have pictures of granddaughter and, and uh, Josiah, and, you know, I'll just stop here for a minute, and we can look at these for a while. We were in Florida, beautiful place. It's like California with humidity. <laughs> Flowers and fruits and vegetables that God created. The texture, the color, the aroma, as we were flying over the nation, you could see the different places that we were flying over, and you could see the different fields, and some of them brown, some of them green. We went to a fish market in, in Florida. They had salmon and sea bass and halibut and mahi, and, and they had trout, but we knew it wasn't local. You, we went to an aquarium, and there were these uh, tiger sharks, and there were sand sharks, and there were eels, and there were clown fish and fish, and Josiah, this little six-year-old, our grandson, was looking at this, and he says, Cool. Look at the picture of that. Look at the color of that one eel, Papa. Look at how green it is. Why is that one green? And I said, because God has this great sense of humor. He loves to create color. And we went out to the ocean, and we were walking there, and there was a little tiny starfish. And, I, and Chris picked it up and put it in Josiah's hand, and it began to suction onto his hand. And we had to run up and show it to Mom, but we couldn't stay out of the water very long because we didn't want it to be out of water too long. And so we took it back, and I put it in my hand, and I said, okay, Josiah, watch what we do. And we put it below the water, and when it felt the water, all of a sudden it would release the suction, and the starfish would float away back into the sea, to the ocean. Why did God create starfish? And and sea turtles, and as Kathy and I were standing in the water up to about our waist, all of a sudden this manta ray came between us and went flying down the beach, and you saw just this big black wedge shape come by, and God's grace is rich. And if he did that just with a sea and just with, a, with one spectrum of that, what, he's, what has he done in your life every day? What did we do to, to deserve this? Nothing, it's grace. John 1 John understood what this was all about. In John 1, verse 16, look what it says. From the fullness of his grace, it's, it's this section talking about Jesus Christ. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Literally, what it says in the Greek is grace heaped upon grace, heaped upon grace, heaped upon grace. It's just overwhelming how much grace is there. God introduced grace through creation. The second part is that God intensifies, uh, intensifies grace through life. He intensifies grace through life. Look at, back at Genesis chapter 1, just a few verses, 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now look at this next verse. Don't miss this. So God created man in his own image. What does that mean? Do we look like God? Is God bald? 
Well, since God is not a, uh, does not have a physical body like we know a physical body, the, the image that we're created in must be the spiritual or the soulish or the, the logical part. It's some other part that we know that we're in his image. But God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Somebody has said that's the only command that the people on the earth have ever obeyed. We've had lots of kids. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living uh, creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all of the beasts of the earth, and all the birds of the air, and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that He saw all that He had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. God does not say it was very good until woman comes on the scene. God intensifies grace through life. Number one, grace allows us to live in relationship. You think about this. Why did God create Adam and then say it was not good? Everything up to that point, he said it was good, it was good, it was good. But it says when he saw that Adam was alone, it was not good. God had several options here. He could have created other men. And he could have created big, huge electronic stores. He could have created Best Buy and put them in in Best Buy. And it would have been very good. Or he could have started out with Eve. And he could have created other women. And he could have created discount malls and put the women in there. And it would have been very good. No. Would they have been happy? Well, for a little while. Until the charge bills came. You know, the, charge, the, the bills came from the charge cards. Would they have been maximized? No. Would they have been satisfied? No. Would they have been content, fulfilled? No. God created a capacity for love and intimacy that Adam could never have known alone. And God saw that we need to be in relationship. We had needed to be in relationship with each other. But did you also notice, if you read the story of, of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that God does not take himself out of the picture. After he creates, he goes and he walks in the cool of the evening. Some, of, some people who are not morning people said that proves that God's not a morning person either. He came in the evening. He likes to sleep late. I don't know that that's true, but God showed up every day, and he walked with them, and he talked with them, and he interacted with them, and, and we don't know how long it went on, but there was this period that there was this perfect relationship between not only Adam and Eve, but between Adam and Eve and God, and it wasn't just good. It was very good. What did Adam or Eve do to deserve relationship? Nothing. It was grace. And don't, don't get me wrong, it's not just the man and the woman, although I think that that is the way that God created us, man and woman, for that relationship. But it also says in the Bible we have many examples of women who had close relationships with Ruth and Naomi and, and men, David and Jonathan. I think of David and Jonathan. Uh, Saul was the first king of Israel. Who was Saul's son? Anybody remember who Saul's son was? 
We had, he had several of them, absolutely. Saul's son was Jonathan. Saul's son was Jonathan. Who was supposed to be the next king? Jonathan. But who did God anoint as the next king? David. And what does Jonathan do? Look in, in 1 Samuel 18, 3. And Jonathan made a covenant with David, the one who was going to take the, the kingdom away, the throne away, the one who was taking Jonathan's place. He made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Folks, that's grace. I mean, by our reckoning, Jonathan should have been the next king. And Jonathan says, no, if God wants to put you in my place, then I love you and I'm going to make this covenant. And Jonathan saves David's life at least once, probably multiple times. Grace allows us to live in relationships. Number two, grace increases our purpose in life. Did you notice that not only did God say to Adam, I want you to have this relationship, but I I want you to have a purpose God gave them something to do that no other part of the creation was given. He didn't create the elephants and he says, listen, here's your chore, here's your job. No, they were just to be. But what was man to do? He was to rule over the, the, the birds and the fish and, 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 and to fill the earth and to subdue it and, and over all the, the fish, the birds, and the animals. In Genesis 2.15, it says, tend the garden. Here's this garden. Maintain, extend the order that God has created in the world. Any of you ever go out and work in the yard? I was out working in the yard yesterday. was away from, for a vacation, and I'd been doing some other painting, so I hadn't done the trimming that I needed to do. Wow. I, I got the part after the fall when we have the aphids and the bugs and the spiders, and I, I came down from the ladder. I was trimming some palm trees, and I came down from the ladder, and there was the biggest black widow spider I've ever seen that was right in the middle of the ladder, and he was looking at me, and I was looking at him. I was about six feet off the ground for just a second. And as I, you know, came off the ladder, I jerked the ladder to the side, and he went scampering. And I believe you should let all of God's creations live, except black widow spiders. It's dead. It's a splat. God increases our purpose in life. He provides a reason for us to live. Listen, folks, you may not have a garden to tend, but you have a purpose in this life. He gave you a reason to be here. He gave you something to do. You have a purpose to fulfill. In Acts 13, 36, we go back to David again. When David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep or he, he went home to be with the Lord, literally is what that's saying. After David fulfilled his purpose, what is your purpose in your generation? You say, well, pastor, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a king. I don't have a purpose. Oh, yes, you do. God has created you with a purpose. He created you to have relationships with other people, to love God, to love others. That's more than a slogan. That's more than a motto. That's who we are. But he also created us with a purpose to do something for him. You know what also kind of bothers me about the creation account? How many rules did Adam and Eve have? How many laws did they have? You know, in the Old Testament, there were 613 laws. There was 10 commandments. There was 365 positive. The rest were negative. How many rules did Adam and Eve have? One. What was it? Don't eat from that one tree. How much grace was shown to them? If you count the light and the land and the animals and the relationship and the purpose, how much grace was shown to Adam and Eve? Weren't there multiple and multiple and there's, there's rich, lavished grace on them with one rule. Don't we tend to think of God that we have all of these rules from God and there's minimal grace 
and maximum rules. I believe that if we looked at all the grace that God has given us, even the number of rules that we think that we have to live by, it would be the same ratio. God's grace is so much more abundant. God intensifies grace through life. Here's the, the last one. God maximizes grace through discipline. Go to, to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to skip over chapter 2. You can read that this afternoon when you're getting tired. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. There was only one snake in the grass, by the way, and that was this serpent, okay? He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. We never find that in Scripture. It looks like Eve has embellished. She's exaggerated, or you will die. Verse 4, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. How stupid is that? Where were they hiding from God? In the garden. Who made the garden? I mean, that's almost as stupid as saying, I, you know, I don't like God, so I'm going to not go to church so he can't find me. That's just about as stupid. Have you ever tried to hide from God? Oh. Look at verse, uh, verse 9. But the Lord God said, call to the man, where are you? Do you think God didn't know where he was? Verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, that's the Lord said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Look at, catch verse 12. Typical response. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Not my fault, God, your fault. You gave me the woman to begin with. Woo. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent wasn't me. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Blame game. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock. The word cursed there literally means obstacles will be placed. I'm going to pin you in so you have no options. Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. All plural up until this last sentence. He, singular, will crush your head and you will crush, singular, his heel. It goes from plural to singular. Don't miss that. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbirth. With pain you will give birth to children. I'm sorry, those of you who are pregnant, I, I, you know, it's just, it's just labor. It'll be okay. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. God maximizes grace through discipline. Number one, what does shame have to do with grace? Adam is ashamed. Have you ever been ashamed? We should be ashamed. We should be ashamed much more than we are. We've tried to eliminate that. But God's reaction to, their act, to, God's reaction to what they had done seems harsh at first, doesn't it? He ends up banning them from the garden. And he says, listen, you're going to have to work hard. You're going to have thorns and thistles. You're going to have bugs and pests. And, and you're going to have pests. And you're going to have disease. And you're going to have death eventually. Literally, it says, dying you shall die. But Adam did not die immediately. What was the penalty? If you look at Genesis 2, 16 and 17, again, what it says is that on the day that you do this, verse 16, the Lord God commanded and said, you are free to eat from the tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The wind there is present tense now. When, the moment you bite it, you will die. Did they die when they ate the fruit? No. Why? Because it was grace. God, even when he gave the command, says, I'm still going to make a way for you. Instead, God disciplined them in order to, for them to experience God's grace. How does shame fit in? God in his grace gives us one other thing. He trusts us. God trusts you. Have you ever failed God's trust? Have you ever blown God's trust? Has God ever given you something to do and you said, okay, God, but I'm, you know, I'm not going to do it today? Have you ever failed God's trust? When we violate that trust, we are ashamed because God trusts us with no strings attached. That's grace. Trust with no strings attached is grace. And when we violate that trust, we're ashamed. Adam and Eve suddenly realized that they were naked. Now, why were they ashamed? There weren't any other people to see them. God had already seen them naked. Why were they ashamed? I, had th- I think it had nothing to do with their bodies. It had nothing to do with their nudity. It had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with the fact that they realized all of a sudden God would know that something was different. They were trying to hide. And when we violate God's trust, we're ashamed. And when we ignore grace, we should be ashamed. Paul comes to that point in Romans chapter 7. He talks about the good things he should do and the, and the things that he knows he should not do. And, and he finally comes in Romans 7, 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul says, I'm so ashamed. I'm, I, I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so ashamed. What, I, I should be so much further in my Christian life than I am right now. What a wretched man I am. Who's going to help me, he says. And then the next verse he goes on to say, but, but Jesus Christ is going to give me victory. Here's the problem. We're trying to eliminate shame, aren't we? I think it's interesting because there are now leagues where they don't keep score because they don't want anybody to be ashamed that their team lost. Boy, that's a fun game. There's no losing. There's, there are schools that will not give grades out to kids in elementary, even in middle school. They're not going to give any grades because someone will be ashamed because their grade's not as high as the other. We try to change the word. We don't call, we, we, don't, we don't want to say shame now. We mistake, we substitute words like mistake. You know, he made a mistake for sin or for wrong. 
You know, he just made a mistake. This prominent leader, I'm not going to call names, but this prominent leader that came out and he said, I made a mistake. Yes, I, I texted these pictures and I had, it turns out maybe he had affairs. I don't know if he did or did not. But he says, a mistake was made. A mistake is an accident. If you subtract wrong in your checkbook, it's an accident. If you don't look, you're, you're, you're driving and you don't see somebody and they blindside you and they hit you, it's an accident. There's all kinds of accidents. You can stumble down the stairs. But an affair is not an accident unless you are blindfolded and dropped in into a room with all these women that don't have any clothes on, then it might be an accident. But everything else, it's not a mistake, it's not an accident, it's sin, it's wrong. And God says we ought to be ashamed. And we have people standing up and saying, well, I'm going to go to rehab. Why don't you go into the throne room of God and fall on the face before God and say, God, I have sinned. What does shame have to do with grace? Everything. Because when we're ashamed, we realize the grace that God is offering. Do I understand the ramifications of grace? Do I understand the ramifications of grace? Did Adam and Eve understand the ramifications of eating that one piece of fruit? We don't know if it's an apple, if it was something else. Do we understand the ramifications of that? By the way, Jesus refers back to Genesis 1 through 11 at least three different times. Jesus refers back to the creation account. He refers to Adam and Eve as real people. I believe the Genesis account is the real story. I'm a creationist. I believe God created the heavens and the earth. And you say, well, I'm an evolutionist. I believe in evolution. When we get to heaven, I'll let God explain all of it to you, okay? But I believe that if Jesus referred to Adam and Eve as real people, that we should look at it that way. And there are ramifications. We severely estimate the impact of sin. We're immersed in a sinful society, and we don't even realize how immersed we are. Let me ask you a question. When we were out in the ocean, and I saw all these, there were all these fish out in the ocean, and a, and a thought occurred to me, because I'm a little weird, and I saw these fish, and I thought, I wonder if fish wonder if they're wet. Do they realize that they're wet? Do they realize, I mean, when we took that starfish out, and it was clinging to Josiah's hand, because obviously, you know, it needed the water. That's how it, that's how it gets its nutrients. It's how it continues to live. If you take a starfish out of water, it dies, and it had just a few minutes that he could go and show his mom, but we wanted to get it back in. Did the starfish, until it's taken out of water, did it suddenly realize, ooh, I really need water? Do fish know that? They're so immersed in, in water all the time until it's taken away. And my question to us is this. Do we realize the society that we're immersed in right now and all of the sin that surrounds us? I don't think we do. We adjust to the surroundings. We lose sight of grace. In Romans 8.21 says that even the creation, even the land, everything will one day be liberated from the bondage to decay. Who took the first step towards the reconciliation? Did Adam come to God and say, Adam, uh, God, I, I blew this. I ate the fruit. Did, is that what happened? Did Eve say, oh, God, I, I listened to the serpent. I shouldn't have. Please forgive me. Is that who took the first step? Who took the first step? God did. And we're told later that he says that he, he took this, these, these skins from an animal. How do you get a skin off an animal? You have to kill the animal first. There was a sacrifice that was given that day for Adam and Eve. Who took the first step? God took the first step. That's grace. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says it this way. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace 
with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. C.S. Lewis was, came into Cambridge University one day and there was this big discussion about world religions and the, the men were all trying to debate and they said, what in the world is the difference? What's the greatest difference between Christianity and all the other world religion, religions? And C.S. Lewis said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Go back one more time. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Who's the he there? It's the one born of a woman. It's the one that was promised. It's the Savior. It's Jesus Christ. From the very beginning when sin came in, from the very beginning of creation, when God was showing grace, he was promising a grace personified, and that grace was Jesus Christ. There's a story told. I think Max Lucado told it. I couldn't find it in the book, so I'll say it's Max's, and if it's not, then, then he got credit for one that he didn't really write. It's a story of a man who comes to a judge, and the man is guilty of murder. He has killed, and it turns out that he's killed someone who is a relative of the judge, and everyone expected the judge to recuse himself from the trial, but he does not. And the judge listens to the man, and the man realizes what's happening, and he says, I don't want a jury trial. I want the judge to decide my fate. And on the day that the trial was to begin, the man stood and he says, I want to change my plea from not guilty to guilty. Judge, I did it. I killed this person, this relative of yours. And the judge says, if there's no other reason for me to listen to testimony, I'm going to exercise my right as a judge and I'm going to give the judgment today. And the man stands and the judge says, because you have murdered, because you have killed, your life will be taken and I sentence you to die. And just about that time, the judge's son stands and he said, Dad, I'll take that penalty. I'll take that punishment. And the judge says, no, I can't do that. He was guilty. And the son says, give him another chance. That's what Jesus Christ did for you. And that's what he did for me. And that was the beginning of grace. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?